Good morning. It's good to see you. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, for those uh, fathers in the room or listening online, happy Father's Day. Um, we're excited about today because today I want to teach you an SAT word. It's called penultimate. And penultimate means the next before last or like the two before. So this is the penultimate service of Encounter Church at Dedham Middle School, um, for, which is important because it means if you show up two weeks from now, we will not be here. Okay, so this is where it gets really practical for your life on July 2nd, July 9th. You get in your car and you arrive here, the doors will be locked. And the police may show up and ask you, what are you doing trying to go in through all the various doors? Um, in fact, we will be relocating. Um, we're almost done with our new space. It's about a mile and a half from here, and we're super excited. And so I just want to make you aware of that. We, we're, you're going to hear a lot. You're going to get a voicemail from me. You're going to get an email from me. But I want to go ahead and tell you, because July 2nd and July 9th, we will not be meeting at all. Um, July 16th, we will kick off in our new space, new place, um, 10.30, same time, uh, but different location. And we uh, want to go ahead and give you a free commercial. We need you. Uh, today, if you have free time, or if you have free time this week, we need you. Um, from 2 to 5 today, we're going to be at the space, and here's what we've done. Um, we've put it in the app for you. Um, at starting point, there's a little link that you can sign up. If you are gifted and skilled with a paintbrush, which is not me, then if you've got 30 minutes, you've got an hour, we could use your help. If you have muscles and you know how to walk, um, then we need you as well. If you have small muscles, but you can still walk, we need you as well. Um, we can use any type of labor because part of what's happening today is we've got to relocate some of the construction supplies to a different room um, because flooring, um, the flooring crew comes in today which is incredible. This evening, the flooring crew will arrive. They will prep the space. Um, the walls are almost finished painting, and by midweek, this week coming up, we will have floors in the space. So when I say we are close, we are close. And um, so if you have 30 minutes, an hour um, today, two hours from 2 to 5, we're going to have the building open, and so any and all help will be greatly appreciated. Um, and July 2nd and July 9th, please do not show up here. Uh, the police will be called, okay? Not really, but just want to kind of make that one stick. So um, now I've done a commercial and I've told you where to go and the app and everything, I want to jump in. Um, I said happy Father's Day for me. This is a day that um, used to be growing up the worst holiday. I hated it. Um, I didn't have a father growing up. And so this is one of those days I wish I could skip on the calendar, quite honestly. I just wanted to kind of hop over this Sunday and wake up on Monday um, because it was just a reminder of what was not present in my life. And it's, it's interesting. Now, as a father, I love this day. This is one of my favorite days of the year. I would actually probably venture that this is a more important day to me than even my birthday. I don't really care about my birthday. It's just a reminder I'm getting old. But Father's Day reminds me of something significant. And, and so I just want to acknowledge the fact that I recognize that that word, Father's Day, is not neutral. And that for some of us in the room, some of us listening online, uh, the word father conjures up really positive, beautiful um, memories and images, and it's the strong arms, it's the good wisdom, it's all those great and glorious things. And then for some of us, it conjures up negative or grief or loss. And that just to kind of go ahead and start, because I never had somebody say that to me, that I recognize that not everybody celebrates this day, that some people mourn this day, and some people are grieving in this day. And, but we still believe that this day can be significant. We still believe this day can be 
a day that stands out even no matter where you are in your circumstance. And by the end, I'll come back around to that. But I just want to acknowledge that because I want to be sensitive to where we all are because we serve a God that we, we as a church, talk about a God who knows you by name, who desires for hope and help to flow into your life, but one, a God who has called you by name, who thought you up. And, um, but one of the reasons I think that fathers have kind of a weight to some of us is because uh, fathers have certain things that they do that stand out. One of the things that they do is they speak and they give counsel, and at least that's kind of what the, the image type is, that the, the good counsel. And for us to kind of jump in today, and we're going to kind of stick the Father's Day thing over here, I want to jump into something that we'll unpack deeper in September, because we're in the midst of a series called See the World and uh, See the World has really been this two-month series where we wanted to challenge the way we think about the world, challenge the way we see the world, but then also to, to come around and give some previews for where we're headed. That we, we want to, last week, kind of teased out this idea that our beliefs influence our behavior, and I so said we'd come back around that to the fall. And today I want to jump into a message that will be the entire month of September's focus, and it's around words and the power of words, and the impact of words, and how you and I, even today, can begin to look at how we can foster the traits of speech that we can learn to put into the patterns of how we speak to one another, a speech that's purposeful, that's beneficial, that is not painful. And many of us desire to know how to speak those kind of words, but oftentimes it's far easier to get into the lane of being hurtful being neglectful, saying the words that trigger, that push the buttons, that cause the response, instead of building up. And today I want to spend some time just jumping in to a statement written by a man almost 2,000 years ago. It's just one sentence, and, but I feel like if we can dive into that sentence and, and work through it, that on the other side of that sentence, that you and I will have the traits and the characteristics that can transform our speech. Um, if you have the Encounter Church app, if you downloaded it, or if you'd like to download it, um, I'm gonna. It, the Bible passage for today is already loaded in, and what I want to do is kind of introduce it. When you see it, there's going to be a word that maybe for some of us you have never seen before. Maybe it's, you're kind of exploring faith, you're new to this Christian thing, um, or to the church thing, or for some of you, you've never really understood how to pronounce this word, and so I recognize that. It's a word that you and I guarantee no matter what kind of restaurant you ate this week, no, no matter what kind of food you ordered, you probably did not say this word this week. It's the word Ephesians, right? You, you, no one said, walked up to a window and said, I'd like two Ephesians, and can you, you know, put it about medium rare? Like Ephesians is not a word that you and I use very regularly, but it's a letter that was written by a man named Paul, and it was to a church in an ancient city called Ephesus. And the people who lived in the city in Ephesus were called Ephesians, and this letter gets its name from the audience that the letter was originally written to. And I want you to understand the backdrop of the letter and why it was written to them, because it helps us to understand why Paul will write these letters. You see, Paul was a man who was incredibly brilliant. He'd grown up being uh, tutored and studying under, under some of the greatest minds in the ancient world. He was trilingual. He was a scholar. In some ways, he would have probably been the most famous Jewish rabbi who would have ever lived had he not had this moment in his life where he became a Christian. You see, um, Paul had made it his life mission to stamp out and to stomp out and to stop the church. And he was persecuting. He was getting Christians arrested. He was even helping Christians to be killed 
because of their faith. And in the course of him executing that mission, he comes across this profound experience where he realizes that Christianity is, in fact, the truth. And that what he had tried to stop actually was now standing in front of him, stopping him. And that moment transformed him. He went from this bright, brilliant Jewish rabbi to now this dogged, bold, declaring Christian teacher, speaker, itinerant. And in fact, to the point that he began to travel beyond what would have been kind of the known world, he started going into areas that a lot of Jews wouldn't have traveled to, and he started to make it his life mission to build the church, not destroy the church. And part of building the church in places where the church has never been is that there was a, a lot of question around how, right? Paul would come into the community. He would begin to speak and teach. There would be miracles. People would hear about Jesus and God's love for them and how Jesus died on the cross and then came back from the dead three days later. And they would see this incredible kind of power present in Paul and ministry that was happening. And this wow kind of stood out to them, and people started becoming Christians. They started kind of converting, and they started turning from pagan beliefs and Roman kind of God beliefs, and they started following Jesus. And there was a lot of wow, but there was not a lot of how to do the Christian thing or to live out the Christian faith. And so Paul um, starts to write letters to these churches that are being formed, these churches being formed on wow, these churches being formed on the message of hope, but they didn't have a lot of help in how to live it out. And so Paul writes this letter to them to say, hey, you got the wow, now let me tell you the how of Christianity. You've heard about the difference Jesus makes, now I want to tell you what it looks like every single day how it practically fleshes out what it looks like in a boardroom, on a ball field, what it looks like in your bedroom, what it looks like in your living room, what it looks like on a street. Here's what Christianity does to your life. And he writes the letter of Ephesians where he unpacks a lot of how. He goes to every kind of imaginable scenario. He's hitting on all the different various outlets in life because Paul wants them to understand Christianity affects everything. It it gets into every area of our life, and it changes how we do it. And he writes this one sentence specifically about the power it has on our words. And he says in Ephesians 4.29, that do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. He writes this one sentence about the power of words. He says, uh, and there's a lot of times you'll see in this letter, he has this contrast. He'll say, hey, this is the way you used to do it. This was the old way without Jesus. Now, this is what Jesus does. When, you, when you're a Christian, here's how it now looks. And so there's a lot of old versus new comparison because that was the heart of Christianity is that God takes the old, the broken in us and exchanges it for something new and beautiful and pure and holy. And there's this exchange and Paul wants them to understand that. He's like the old way of speaking and now there's a new way of speaking. But the sentence is loaded. In fact, the entire time this morning, it's just this one sentence because he chooses words that have so much significance in them that you could kind of just keep digging and you would go a while before you'd hit the bottom. In fact, he, he makes this really powerful statement that's underneath the surface because if you remember, Paul is writing almost 2,000 years ago. He's a brilliant trilingualist who understands the audience and so he's writing these really deep thoughts in a language called Greek. And he uses some words in this state, this sentence, that, to kind of tease out the fullness of the meaning that, unfortunately, when you go from the Greek to the English like we have, we miss it. The word unwholesome isn't potty words. Right? You can read this and, and say, oh, it's probably like he's probably talking about profanity 
or lying. He's, you know, that's, that's probably what he's unpacking here is don't say stupid stuff, essentially. Say smart stuff. But that's not what Paul is simply saying. There's more to that. That the word unwholesome and then the word building actually point to a deeper truth. Like it points to the why it matters. Why our words actually make a difference. Why when Jesus steps into our lives and we become Christians, why it even chooses to impact our words. Because when I became a Christian, I didn't change the way I baked. Right? I didn't start adjusting my baking or I didn't adjust my wardrobe, but there were some things that Jesus did change because there was something deeper at play, and the words are one of those things. The word unwholesome actually means this, it's this idea, this concept of words that are rotting, words that are corrupting. It points to the fact that when you and I are speaking to one another, that the words we use have power, that they actually somehow, they pass our eardrums, they go through our neural network in our brain, and they get lodged down deep somewhere inside of us. And that our words don't just get stuck. He says our words have some characteristic. They can be unwholesome, which means when they lodge down deep, they start to rot away. And they start to corrupt everything it's sitting on. And some of us experienced that this week, right? Your spouse said something. Maybe they said, are you going to wear that? And that kind of hits, and all of a sudden it starts to, what do you mean am I going to wear this? Is there something wrong with this? Is, do you say this doesn't look good on me? I mean, it, it just starts to creep. Or your boss makes a comment about, hey, we're going to need to talk Monday when you come in, and it, boom, it just starts to spread. That our words have power, that our words stay even when we go away. And they keep echoing, and they keep working. And they're either going to be unwholesome, unwholesome, rotting, corrupting, decaying. Or he says they're going to be words that build. Some of us are in this room, and words were spoken over you 20, 30 years ago that are still lodged down deep, and they're still eating away at you. Words that were never said to you that still rot and eat away at the core of who you are. Because Paul is warning us, look, our words have power. They don't just hit and, and evaporate. They echo. They stay, even long after we've gone away. And he says, this is why words matter, because there's a power to them. And so do not use any unwholesome, rotting, corrupting, decaying, erosive words. Use words that are helpful. Use words that make a difference, that stir people to purpose and peace, not pain, that stir people to, to develop and to grow, not damage and die. And fortunately for us, he doesn't just give us a command. He doesn't just tell us, don't do this. He actually tells us how, because this is a letter with a lot of how statements a lot of descriptions. And again, it's this one sentence written in a different language that on the surface we can miss even some of the how if we're just reading through it quickly. If you notice, he says, after he encourages them to move away from the unwholesome talk, he says what should mark it is only what is helpful. So this is the other. This is the new way of speaking, the helpful way. And then he describes what helpful speech looks for. It builds up others according to their needs. So this is the mark of helpful speech. To put another way, it's the right words the right way at the right time, is what he's saying. That helpful words are the right words in the right way at the right time. That he, he encourages us that when we speak, 
that our cue is, is the person. A lot of times damaging words get spoken out of frustration. I need to get something off your chest. You feel frustrated on the inside. And for many of us, speaking is about us being inner cleansed. When in reality, he says speech should be about building them up and their future. Oftentimes, speech is about, for us, what somebody has done in our past. And he says, no, speech should be about what you want to set for their future. It's different. Your cue on what to say comes from what they need, not how you feel. That it's not a tool to destroy, that it's a tool to build. And that the right words understand where the person is. The right words look to their future that it's built on their foundation. I love that he uses this construction frame, right? That he's like building up others. The way you build something is you build on what's already present, right? That what's already there, what is already there is what you attach things to. And so it's rooted in who they are. It's truth in who they are. It's not flippant, empty words. It's words that are built on where they are and what's already happening in their life. It's, they're helpful. They're right. They're true, and their foundation is built on where they are, not how you feel in the moment. And so he's, he's starting to kind of unpack this and stretch it out. And it's really hard to speak to someone with where they are if you don't know where they are. That I would argue that most of the time, right speech happens with listening, asking questions, understanding where the person is. Most of us go through our lives and we have all of this inner dialogue and no one even knows what's going on inside of us because many of us don't sit time to take time to understand who the person is sitting across from us and to tease it out and to ask questions because it's really hard to build on something if you don't know what's already present there. Paul's like, the right words are built on what's already present in their life. But he doesn't just stop there. Because we all recognize that just saying the right thing doesn't automatically translate into building up someone. And in the, the way, remember when I said this is written in a different language, he uses words that have to be pulled and stretched. He uses a word according to their need. And it's one word for us, but it has a lot more. It's like a diamond that you could keep turning. There's different facets that for their need actually has a couple different nuanced meanings. That it's the right word spoken in the right way. I don't know about you, but have you recognized that some people take different approaches? Some people need different approaches in how you say things. That there are some people who like the direct and short way. Just give it to me. Say it. And then there's some that were, it's got to be wrapped in love and a big old bow of compliment. And you serve it nice in a slow kind of music playing kind of way. And you slide it across the table. And it's the sandwich. It's not even a sandwich of compliments. It's like the subway, like, you know, like club thing, man. It's just all kinds of high. And there's like all these good things. Oh, by the way, by the way, could you work on that? There's some people who need that kind of approach. I mean, you've probably seen this if, if you've been around children or maybe you're a parent with multiple kids that you probably see this lived out every day that there's one child that responds one way to one thing and the very same words has to be put in a different way to the other one because they require a different approach. Maybe one, you just look at them square in the face, you say it to them. The other one, you got to wait till it's almost bedtime. You walk in, you scratch the little back a little bit and you start to whisper. Say, hey, do you remember today when you said this? 
It's a different approach. It's not just saying the right words. It's the right words in the right way. And when we are listening, when we're learning who they are, then we start to realize they, they're different than me. They need something different from me. If I'm going to bring words into their life that build them up, I have to approach them in the way that they best respond. But he doesn't just end there. When he says, according to their need, there's all of these facets, right? Even the tone. Have you noticed that? Like a compliment can sound like a complaint or a criticism all about the tone. I mean, this is something that in our own household, we're working with Ella because we, we, we want her to realize, hey, your tone matters. What you say and how you say it, right? The, are you sure that's a good idea? Just, or, or, you know, your brother doesn't do it that way. It's just this subtle tone attached to some words can change the meaning. And it's not just in our tone, and it's not just in how we approach the, the word according to their need even gets down to the time itself. For some of us, we may be roommates we may be friends or maybe even married to someone who's a processor. They need some time. So you, for you, what this looks like is approaching them and saying, hey, um, I'd like to talk about our finances. In a couple of days, could we sit down and could we discuss our finances and some of the decisions we're making that I feel like could be better? And it's not in that moment. You don't drop the bomb on them. You kind of give them a heads up. Hey, in two days, I want to sit down and talk through this. Or two days, I want to talk about your, your hobby and how much time you're spending golfing. Right? I mean, it's just there's, there's this approach that says for a processor, it may be two days. For some people, it may be right now, in the moment, say it, and it's done. And for that person, that personality type and that individual, it's just... Now is always the best time. With me, do not approach me and say, hey, I'd like to speak to you in a couple of days about this problem. This is not going to work with me. Hey, it's going to be right now. I'm like, go ahead and sit down. I got the door locked. No, we're talking about this now. Like, it, uh, it's going to happen. That's why in our own house, we have a rule. If it's like 10 p.m., we do not bring up anything we need to talk about at some distant point because I'm stupid, and I'm going to make sure I force that conversation, and it never ends good. I have never, ever, ever seen one of those conversations end good after 10 p.m. Like, I really like my wife. We have a really good relationship. I think I'm married so far up that I will never get to the top of that mountain no matter how long I live. And the few times that we've had bad conversations has been me wanting to push something after 10 p.m. where she needs time to process. And I'm like, no, woman, we're talking right now. I ain't going to bed. I'm not turning the light off. Uh-uh. I'm, pu I'm putting my clothes back on. I'm getting dressed like I'm going to work. We're talking. And it never works. Because there's an appropriate, there is a right time to talk. And, it's, and you have to walk in taking your cue on what you're going to say from the person sitting across from you. Because if we're going to speak words that are helpful, they have to be not only the right words in the right way, but even at the right time. The kind of journey we find ourselves in a family is kind of in the midst of all this. I have a five-year-old little girl um, who is so different than me in some ways. And uh, recently, we've kind of started to navigate these waters with her around words and life. Um, 
And believe it or not, the catalyst for this conversation has been gypsy moth caterpillars, okay? And gypsy moth caterpillars are these little tiny caterpillars. They've got all these, like, hairs sticking out of them. I mean, it's just like, it's like a bald guy tried to spike his hair and he just failed completely. I mean, that's kind of what it looks like. It's just horrible. But these things are, like, really, really tricky because if they stick into your skin, they can be worse than poison ivy. And so, they're the, you know, they're, the news was broadcasting. Of course, it's not like the zoomed out, like the thing is the size of a little bit, you know, like a big piece of rice. It's like it's always zoomed in, and it's like menacing, and you can see its little things, and the hairs look like they're three feet long. It's like, Ugh. and it looked like demon caterpillars from Mars. I mean, they're terrifying looking. And so somehow in the midst of that, like the news and the article, like, you know, we started talking about gypsy moths caterpillars in our household. Like, oh, we should probably avoid the gypsy moth caterpillars so that we don't scrape our skin off and itching because that's what they supposedly will cause. And our daughter heard that and got really, really afraid. Like, I mean, really afraid. And so a couple of weeks ago, we were having a daddy-daughter date, and we were, um, we were at a playground. And so we'd had this, like, really awesome day where kind of planned this event, and it leads up to this event, and then we're going to culminate with the playground. And Because my daughter is, she's like a slow processor, so I want to pull things out of her. And so I have to kind of, like, scheme out my day to kind of, like, have really good conversation. And I'm like, all right, we're going to get to the playground. I'm going to play on the playground, and it's going to be awesome. And we get to the playground. She gets two steps up, and there is a gypsy moth caterpillar. It's like right there. And she starts screaming. Ah! And then she leaps onto me and like her fingers touch my bone. Okay? Daddy, get me out of here. Every parent, right? Helicopters flying overhead. Everybody, spotlights on me. They're like snapping pictures of me. I wonder if he abuses her, right? I mean, like people are looking at me like I have done something wrong. I'm like, girl, we got to get back in the car. And I like get her back to the car. And I'm like, go, you know, like shove her in the car. And we're driving down. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a good dad. I'm like, hey. And she's like, oh, I never want to go outside again. And I'm driving down the road. And I'm like, girl, the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. And we can do this. And don't have to be afraid. And like, oh, we got this. And man, we're going to like get so close to the caterpillar the next time. And she's like, I'm never going outside again. And I'm driving the front seat, and I'm like, this day has just turned into a complete failure. And none of my words of don't be afraid is not working. And so I'm, it, later, um, and I'm kind of going back to that moment, and I'm like, why is my FDR quotes and don't be afraid not inspiring her? It worked for the nation. Why can't it work for her, Right? And, um, and it hits me. I was like, okay, Chris, let's just be real. Um, the reality is, is that those things are quite terrifying. I mean, have you looked at one? 
When you knocked it off, you got the longest stick in the playground so that you could flick it. And when you flicked it, you kind of shielded your body because did you know that those little hairs, those little flying poison dart hypodermic needle hairs, right, can, can go airborne. And if they happen to hit you in the air, they can still cause it. I mean, so like, we're walking around in an invisible minefield, people. It's like, hello, at any point you could step outside and one of them suckers get, go, get you in the throat and you not know it. And then hours later, you're scratching the thing like you got the mange, right? Like this thing could happen. Like you should be terrified of it. You're terrified of it. She should be terrified of it too. And I'm processing through it. I'm like, it's true. It's quite terrifying. And, and it's like, let's just even be real. Like when I was about 12 or 13, I got attacked by 40 plus bees. I mean like traumatizing attack by 40 plus bees, like on my face, crawling in my mouth, traumatizing. Okay. Like I'm still working through that moment to the point that when I married my wife, when we went on a honeymoon, it was like the very next day. Like, I mean, we, I do girl. And then the next day and we're walking into this mountain cabin and a honeybee flies right at me and she's in front of me and the door's already open. I pushed her into the bushes and ran in the house. Now that day, Girl, I saved your life. That honeybee was coming right for you, and I pushed you out of the way, and I got in front of it, and you're welcome. I mean, well, you're welcome. I saved you. Like, it didn't work that day, and it still doesn't work today, but, like, if her father pushed her mother into the bush to avoid a bee on the honeymoon, for crying out loud, like, of course she's going to be terrified. And so after a couple weeks of me processing through my fears, um, I settled on a new path. It was last week, about a week and a half ago, and we'd had a little daddy-daughter day, and um, we were walking up the steps and going back into our place, and I said, hey, Ella, um, and she'd seen me take a picture of a bee just recently, and I said, um, we saw a bug. She was like, daddy, I'm, I'm really afraid of bugs. I was like, can I tell you a secret? I am too. Daddy's really afraid of bugs, too. So, but you know what? Um, do you see how Daddy took the picture of that bee? How he got really close? You know what Daddy was doing then? What? Daddy was being brave. You know what brave is? Brave is that you still step into it, you still say what you need to say, or you still do what you need to do, or you still follow through what you need to follow through, even if you still feel fear, feel fear inside. Like, being brave doesn't mean you don't feel fear. It means you still do it even with the fear there. Like, that's what being brave is. And she's like, oh, Daddy, I'm not brave. And I was like, oh, baby, girl, yes, you are. You are so brave. No, no, Daddy, I'm not brave. I was like, you are brave. You want to know how I know you're brave? How? Well, when we go on rides, like when we go to amusement parks or water parks, only brave people ride those kind of things. She's like, I do like to ride those things. It makes my, my tummy feel funny. I'm like, yeah. Only brave people ride them over and over and over and over again. Because you're brave. You really are brave. And I'm proud of how brave you are. And then we walked into the house moment was over. And I was in bed that night, and Jenny and I were talking, and I said, it kind of hit me. I was, I was processing through what our conversation was about. I was like, Jenny, 
It's like, you know what scares me? And I had this word picture pop into mind. It's like, as parents, we write in wet cement. You know when you, like, when you see cement poured, and it's like in that moment, if you pick that stick up, you can carve your name. It's technically vandalism, but you can carve your name or that heart and, you know, or like forever. And I, people just do that. And this, if, if you write it and you catch it early, you can erase it and you can fix it. But you let the sun stay out, or you let the cement dry, and what happens is what's written in there that was erasable becomes forever and permanent. I was like, we write in wet cement in that girl's life every day, and I so desperately, I want us to write words that are worthy of sticking. Because it hit me that I had a conversation with a five-year-old walking up, a step, up the steps that may affect how she lives when she's 35. Because that word brave got, got written into that cement last week. And I'm regularly sticking that stick in and going back over and over again, saying, you're brave, you're brave. And one day it's going to stick. But realization is, even since then, I was like, we are all writing in wet cement, aren't we? It's not just parents. Your coworker, the patient that you see regularly, the business, businesses that you interact, interact with. Like we, every time we interact with them, we're writing words in wet cement. And those words have power because they're going to stay long after we've walked away. The off comment that we make to the young guy making the presentation in the boardroom, to the statement that we say to our child in their bedroom, to the words that we say or unsay and we never speak, even in the midst of just everyday life, that we all are writing in wet cement. And I think this is what Paul understood when he said, speak words that build people up because your words will stay long after you walk away. And make sure that the words you write are worthy. I'm on the stage today because someone saw something in me and spoke something into me. They saw, hey, I think you can speak. I think you can teach the Bible. I think maybe you could actually do this ministry thing. They weren't in ministry, but they saw something, and they said it to me. They didn't leave it unsaid. They wrote in wet cement, and today that cement is hardened, and this is what I get to do, and I love it. But it happened because someone said it to me. Someone scribbled it, and it stuck. And that you and I have this opportunity every single day of our life to write things into the hearts and lives of other people that will shape them forever. And the question is not if we will do it. The question is what, we will, what will we say when we do it? I mean, we all have an opportunity and a privilege to write into wet cement. What are going to be the words that you write? Because at the end of the day, Paul finishes with this statement. He says that we do this so it may benefit those who listen. That Paul wanted us to realize that our words matter because ultimately when we speak, it flows from a deeper place. And in fact, I, I was walking uh, through a hallway and I came across this poster and I felt like this is it. This is actually one of the words that Paul uses um, where he says it may benefit, he uses this word that's a spiritual word. 
has nothing to do with benefits. It has everything to do with this idea of grace, and it speaks to the source. He's essentially saying that the words we have, they have a spiritual source. They're flowing out of a deeper place. And I saw this painting, and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is really profound. Um, I, I, I'm weird. I look at things, and I, I'm like, oh, that's really profound. And because it's this painting of Mickey Mouse um, looking in a mirror, drawing Mickey on a painting, but what he's really drawing as he's starting the sketch is Walt Disney. Because what Mickey can't help to do, even as he starts to sketch, is reflect his creator. And that you and I were created by a God who speaks words. He created words. He even calls Jesus the living word. We are a people, a people of the word as Christians. We believe words have power, and it has power because when we speak, we do it in the reflection of the creator who made us. And that Paul ends with this statement that so that when you go out, realize that you you write with an ink that doesn't come just from within. It comes from heaven itself. So write words that are worthy of being written. Say things that you're okay that will stay even after you've gone away. And that if we as people are willing to step in and begin to speak words that are the right words at the right time in the right way, that what will happen is we will start to see good come into the lives of those around us. And so as we step into this week, may God begin to change the way you see the world. May you see lives as these little molds that have just recently had something poured into it with a sign that says, wet cement, caution. And may the words that come out of your mouth, may they be words that bring life and bring hope and that echo in the hearts of the people that we interact with long after we've gone away in a way that continues to benefit them long after we've gone. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the words that you speak over us. And I pray that you would guide and lead, that you would um, help us to speak words that are helpful, that help to guide people to life and to grace. And we are, um, we're grateful for the words that you've spoken over us. And uh, we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, wonder, as we wrap up today, uh, we're going to respond the way that we normally do. We always carve out space at the end just to kind of process through whatever the message was, was that day. And we also carve out space so that we can... Um, as a church, we're very generous. Uh, a, a week from yesterday, uh, we will have 600 plus people in the park for a free movie night. Um, we are over uh, uh, the most recent total, even in given towards the building. We've made significant, significant strides and are close to the halfway mark. And last week, we were like at the third. And so we we're like, just in the course of one week, this huge job. And that we're generous people because we serve a God who's generous. And so we carve out the space to practice our generosity. And for those who are guests who are, are exploring uh, Encounter Church or maybe Christianity as a whole, uh, to, to maybe a way that you can, uh, let us know how we can pray for you. Let us know how we can step into your life and, and engage with whatever that next step for you looks like. But today I wanted to also put another way of response that may have nothing to do with the message. That I, um, I was just recently watching um, 
an interview with a guy by the name of Norman Lear. And he's probably not a guy that you've ever heard of, but you've seen his influence or his impact. I mean, most of us probably even grew up, in fact, watching the shows that he helped produce. He was behind All in the Family. He was behind The Jeffersons, right? He, he was behind Sanford and Sons. He was a revolutionary TV writer. I mean, he was doing things that we now take for granted. He's considered to be one of those kind of pioneering, greatest TV producers ever. Um, he's done so many different things in his life. And I'm watching this interview, and he's a 92-year-old man, and he's just written a book about his life. And in the course of the interview, and they're talking about all the good things he's done, all the amazing things that he shaped culturally. And it gets to this point in the interview where he starts to tear up a little bit. He says, I want to say something. I, it was really... He's like, it came out when I was writing the book. He's like, the second it's the only second time I've ever publicly said this. He said, I used to tell people when, when I would be interviewed about uh, this, my grandfather, and who my grandfather was, and how he'd write the president, how the president wrote back, and how he was this great man, because my father wasn't. His father abandoned him. He was a huckster. He was a con man. But he's like, I, I used to always brag about my granddad. And he said, in writing the book, I, I finally decided I needed to be honest and said that I lied. The guy I talked about was never my granddad. He's like, it was, it was a friend's, friend's father. He's like, and then he got emotional. He said, I, I guess the reason I lied for, for almost nine decades was that I just really wanted a father. I wanted to talk about a father I was proud of. And I didn't have it, and so I just made it up. And here's this 92-year-old man who has had all this success in life, and he is broken. Broken. Because of a man that eight decades before had walked out on him. And I just sat there, and I was stunned. I was like, oh, my goodness, there are some parts of our heart that never heal. 80 years doesn't fix it. That unless you lean into it, unless you allow something to redefine it, it just stays. It's wet cement that hardens. And that for some of you, maybe it's not words that you need to respond today, that maybe it's a who that you need to respond to today. And here's what I want to, I mean, I wish I could have hit pause and step into my television and just hug him and say, I know that when you were just a little boy, that man walked out, but I wish someone had told you about a God who never would walk out on you. I wish he'd told you about a God who looked over you and said, I love you. I am here. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never walk away from you, that my words are trustworthy and true, and that what I say, I mean, and what I promise you, I do, I will do, that you will never have to question me. You will never have to doubt me. You will never have to wonder, am I going to come through or am I going to show up? Because I am strong and I am trustworthy. I am true and I am a foundation and I am a rock and you can stand on me, son. Like you don't have to spend 80 years of your life wishing and lamenting and walking in brokenness and a lie over something that was never true when all along there was a great God who loves you over you. I just wanted to say that to him because that's what got spoken into my life. 
that there is a God who loves me, that it doesn't matter how bad your father was. It doesn't matter how absent or how great that the lowercase f father, no matter how good, bad, or ugly it was in your life, that there is a capital F father over you who speaks words of love, who speaks words of hope, who speaks words of future and good and promise that that's the father that we celebrate at Father's Day, that that's the one that we can stamp into the ground and stand on and say, it does not matter where or who or what my father was. I know that there is a capital F father in heaven over me who says, I am loved, that I am free, that I am forgiven, that I am wanted, that I am accepted, that I am cherished, that I am thought about. I'm sorry, but I mean, that's what he thinks about you. And when we celebrate Father's Day, that's the Father that we celebrate too. And that's spoken over all of Christianity is that we have a good, good Father. That no matter how bad our circumstances are, and that for us, then maybe your response today is to flip the projection, to stop taking what you saw in your earthly father and pushing it up to heaven, but allow heaven to push down onto you. And to say, this is who I am. I'm good good father and it's who I am and you're loved and it's who you are and so we wanted to just carve out and end today with responding with a song that speaks to that <clears throat> and maybe for you if you have a good father to thank God for that maybe if you are a father to say God help me be the kind of father that you are to me and that maybe if you're a teenager maybe you're an empty nester, that whatever season you are, that you would say, God, help me to be that kind of father, to be that kind of grandfather, to be that kind of person to people who don't have fathers in their life. To step in and be a reflection of you on earth and to write new words of hope and life into the wet cement that I'm always stepping around. So I want to invite you to stand. The band's going to lead us. We're going to respond. And then after that, we'll be done. Thank you for your patience and allowing us to press into that. But we serve a good father and he loves you. And may we respond in this song to him and the words he's spoken over us.